you are, God. You're good all the time. And we thank you that even in the midst of pain and difficulty that we would, um, that we would not choose for ourselves, um, that all that stuff that comes at us in Christ is ultimately mercy for those who know you. And you are shaping us, you're molding us into the image of your Son, Heavenly Father. And we just ask that today you would do that again. We pray that as we, um, Lord, physically sit here with our eyes on our Bibles and on your word, that spiritually our eyes would be lifted upward towards you. Um, and that we would look full on in the light of your glory and grace, um, to the light of the, the face of Christ that was bruised and had a crown of thorns pushed on his head for us. And we pray that as we gaze upon you, Jesus, that you would shape us into your image. Um, we need you, we love you, and we thank you for this time, these moments that we get to spend together around your word and worshiping you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. trip over your cord there. Good morning. Hey, if you got your Bibles, grab them. And I do, seriously, I, I can actually tell you to go somewhere. Now, go to, go to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. We finished up our doctrinal series last week. I had been telling you mainly just to grab your Bibles and go somewhere. It's all good. Um, all of the Bible is good. We like it all. Uh, but we are jumping back into our Bible reading plan here. And we're going to be going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. The first chapter is just 10 verses, and so let me read those for us. Uh, hopefully you've been reading them this past week. Um, if you do not have a Bible reading plan, there are little bookmarks um, out on the connect table out front right when you walk in. Please feel free to grab one or a couple or whatever. Um, and, and there are also, I don't know if I have mine in my Bible right now or not, but <laughs> um, yeah, I do, but this little deal right here, for those of you that may not know, um, it's really simple, if you, but if you uh, Connor had made an announcement earlier about we're going to be doing a, an E2 course here uh, in the month of October, every Wednesday night up at the Hub, just on how to study your Bible. Um, but there's some simple little questions here as well, just to get you, just to get you started. Uh, if, if you feel like you read the Bible sometimes and you just don't get anything from it, from it when you learn just a couple simple things just to look for, uh, it kind of becomes a little key to help unlock the scripture. And so if you just want to answer some of these little questions on the back of the bookmark and the Bible reading plan is on the other side, um, I promise you it will help you because all of the work, you've heard me say this a thousand times, but all of our process of becoming like Christ happens through the word and the spirit just being mingled together in our hearts. But let me, let me read here um, these 10 verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but also your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, 
who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray one more time. God, thanks for this morning. We do pray that you would fill us with your spirit right now and that you would open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Uh, I, I'm really excited to go through the book of 1 Thessalonians. I, I truly believe that God in his providence, as we kind of mapped out a Bible reading plan um, last November for this year, I really do believe that this is going to be timely uh, for us to go through um, for, several different, for several different reasons. Uh, but most broadly, the reason I'm excited to go through it is just simply because we want to be like the Thessalonian church. Um, the Thessalonian church uh, had issues just like every single New Testament church did, but the Thessalonian church uh, truly was, was a model um, of what the gospel does and how the gospel works to form us into the image of Christ and to form us into a people that can bring honor and glory to God. Uh, over the last decade or so, and maybe beyond that, maybe 10, 15 years, uh, and some of you might not be aware of this, but there's, um, it's called, you ever hear the term Big Eva? Do you know what I mean when I say Big Eva? Um, it's not a woman, uh, but it's referring to um, evangelicalism. So, uh, big evangelicalism, and I forget who, the, who it was that first coined the phrase, but there's, I think it was a guy named Sky Jathani. Um, he used the phrase the evangelical industrial complex. Um, and it's a little bit cynical, but also somewhat true, is that uh, Christianity, especially in America, has become a multi-billion dollar business um, with resources and different things like that that you can buy and conferences and all those different things. And again, I'm not in any way knocking all of them. I think we've all uh, benefited uh, from some of that. However, uh, one of the things that's almost become a little bit cliche within within Big Eva, Big Evangelicalism, is, is you get from time to time and throughout different seasons, and like I was saying, over the last 10, 15 years, there's this one little phrase that, that became like a little uh, catchphrase that was just kind of slapped on and labeled on to everything, and that was the phrase gospel-centered, gospel-centered. Um, here's just a few, this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch, but here's just a few book titles over the last 10 years or so. Um, Gospel-centered life, gospel-centered teaching, gospel-centered church, gospel-centered family, the gospel-centered community, the gospel-centered, having gospel-centered conversations, and gospel-centered leadership. Um, is, and, and again, I'm not, so just to be clear here, I'm for the gospel, I'm for people talking about the gospel, uh, when we understand what the gospel is, when the gospel uh, is, is rightly defined, and I'm for being gospel-centered. However, um, just like anything else, when something just becomes kind of a little catchword, and if everything is gospel-centered, then nothing is really gospel-centered, because it just becomes this word, this Christianese that we just kind of uh, throw around, and that really doesn't have any, any meaning. Um, and I say all that this morning because uh, if we want to take that, that little phrase, gospel-centered, in the best way possible, um, is the Thessalonian church truly was a gospel-centered church. And they were a gospel-centered church because they, were, they weren't just centered on the gospel, but they were shaped by the gospel. They were shaped by the gospel. What I mean by that is, if you say you're gospel-centered, meaning that the gospel is your focus, then here's how you truly know. Like, everybody says that, and that's what happened in Big Eve over the last year. Everybody says, oh yeah, we're a gospel-centered church, we're a gospel-centered church, but what does that really mean? Well, here's one thing that it has to mean for sure, is that if you say that you're gospel-centered, then you must be gospel-shaped. In other words, if you say that the gospel is the center of your life, then it must change you. 
because the gospel has implications. The gospel is the power of God into salvation, and it will mold you. It will shape you. This message about Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, if we say that we truly believe it, if we say that we're gospel-centered, then we must be gospel-shaped. And the Thessalonian church was not just a gospel-centered church, but they were a church that was also gospel-shaped. Here's the thing about um, the Thessalonian church that's so intriguing to me, especially as a pastor, is understanding a little bit of the history of the church. And we, it, you find Paul planting the church in Acts chapter 17. Don't go there now. We'll look at it a little bit later, and I'll read, I'll read most of it to you. Um, But Paul was only in the city of Thessalonica for about three weeks. Now some scholars debate this. They think he might have been there um, a a few months. But no matter whether it was just three weeks or uh, maybe a couple months, it doesn't really matter. Compared to the other places that Paul went and ministered, uh, he was there a very short time relative to all the other places that he went and preached the gospel and planted churches. And yet, and yet, even though he was there for just a short time, the gospel came, as we read earlier, with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction of sin to where these little baby Christians, people who had only been Christians for just a short amount of time, became an example to everybody in their region. So what you find in Acts chapter 17 is that Paul goes in there and he reasons in the synagogue for th- on three Sabbath days. That's where we get approximately three weeks from. And then some people were coming to know Jesus. And then the Jews, the unbelieving Jews... Um, get stirred up to jealousy, and so they literally go out uh, to the streets and they round up some shady characters from the mob or from the rabble, it says, and they, and they cause the whole city to go, to go into an, an, an uproar, and Paul and his companions are kind of run out of town. And so uh, this, you have this little baby church who's just heard the gospel and is, and, and is now enduring some pretty severe persecution and opposition and trial and tribulation. And so Paul gets kind of run out of town. He sends Timothy very shortly after back to check on them to see how they are. Timothy then, after a short time there, making sure that they're doing okay, comes back to Paul, and now Paul writes them this letter. And so, are you following me? Paul's only there for maybe just as few as three weeks. He gets run out of town, and then just a few months later, maybe as much as like close to a year, nine months, but probably, that's probably the max. Not much long after that, he writes this letter back to them, and he's greatly encouraged by them because the gospel came to them, and it was real. Christ changed their lives, and they were holding firm in the Lord. And so when I say that the Thessalonian church was truly a, a church that was shaped by the gospel, you have to understand, they didn't have, there was no Lifeway Christian bookstore, okay? There was no gospel bookstore. There was no, and I, um, I've mentioned this before, like I get emails every week, not because I, you know, how many of you have an email that's like over 20 years old? Anybody? Yeah. Like really, and I, you know, I've had this one, my, one, my Yahoo email um, forever, like since the internet was a thing. That's um, how old I am, I guess. Uh, but I, I get these emails from these different groups that are things I've signed up for over the years that, that I don't really want anymore. But, you know, it's like you get, I told you, I get these emails like church planting in a box. Like they'll send you a little packet and a little like a, a year's worth of sermons that you can preach and, and, and how to do it. Like um, there, there, there was none of that. Um, there were no Christian conferences. There were no YouTube sermons. There were no podcasts. What the Thessalonian church had was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it radically formed, it radically shaped their life. And they became an example to all the believers in the region. And 
I want that for us. You with me? I want to be the Thessalonian church. Um, I do think there are things that we'll see in here that, that are happening. And I do think we are like them in some ways. And yet, there's always room to grow. And there's always room for more. So, two things about being a gospel-shaped church like the Thessalonian church. Number one, we are shaped and transformed by the gospel's power. We are shaped and we are transformed by the gospel's power. And this point um, is kind of littered throughout. It's not just in one place, uh, but it's kind of woven throughout all of these 10 verses. But let me show you just a couple places, okay? First of all, start in verse 2. Paul says, after his introduction of who's writing the letter, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, and here's where the power of God came into play. This is how it was at work. He says, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. And those three ideas, faith, love, and hope. Your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, read it carefully here. He is not thanking the Thessalonians that they are like this. He is thanking God for the Thessalonians and that these characteristics are evident in them. He's not thanking the Thessalonians. He's thanking God for the Thessalonians. You're like, why is that important? It's important because this is where change comes from. Change comes from God. God is the one that changes us. But the way that he changes us, the means that Almighty God has sovereignly ordained to bring about change is through the proclamation of the gospel. And what did it produce? What did it change? We'll look more at this. It brought faith, love, and hope. Now look at verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. Well, how do you know if somebody's chosen? Here's the only way you can know if somebody is chosen by God. Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, it came with words. It didn't just come with a lifestyle. We're going to talk more about the lifestyle. The lifestyle is important. It needs to be modeled. I'm going to, that's kind of my second point, okay, not to jump ahead. It's important. But it came with words. The gospel is a message that must be spoken. But it came to them not only in words, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction or full or deep assurance, some of your English translations might say. It came not just with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full assurance or full conviction. This is how the gospel came, and Paul was thanking God for it because God is the one that did this. If the gospel is truly entered into our life, if we say that we are a gospel-centered people, then we must be shaped by its power. Shaped by its power. <clears throat> it's a message, but it's a power, and it, and it comes, and again, this might, I know this is kind of like, basic stuff and might be kind of like a Captain Obvious type statement, but as I've already said, because it's a power, it's going to overpower you. You understand that? God wants to change you. And again, hopefully that's obvious, hopefully we know that, but I don't know that we can always assume it. Because sometimes it seems like we live our lives like like, yes, we want God, but we don't want him to change anything in us, right? Which doesn't, which doesn't make any sense. But what he wants to bring into our life is faith, love, 
and hope. And if you'll, you'll look at these here, again, he says work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Now, this doesn't really matter, but technically speaking, like linguistically in the Greek, this is what's called an objective genitive. But what it just simply means is this. It's like for each one of those things, it's, when he says work of faith, it means it's a faith that works. It's a love that labors. It's a hope that is steadfast. Okay, Because there are counterfeits to everything uh, that God actually does. So there's a faith that does not work. There's a faith that doesn't produce any change. It's what James says. Sometimes people say that James and Paul contradicted each other, and Paul said, you know, we're justified only by faith, and, and James says, you know, faith without works is dead. No, Paul says the same thing. Real, authentic faith is a faith that works in your life. Real, authentic love, love from the Holy Spirit, it is a love that labors. That word for labors there, it's literally the word, it's, it's, a, it's a word that you wouldn't normally use. It's literally the word for beat. Or the root word of it is, means to cut, like to get beat, to get cut. Like to accept the gospel into their life, to be changed by its power, because it came with resistance almost right from the beginning when they received it. It cost them something. And for them to love Paul and, his, and, and, and Silvanus and Timothy and his co-workers and, and to begin to um, uh, boldly and publicly confess that they believed in Jesus, it cost them something. And it was like a beating, Paul says. This, this labor, labor of love, this love that labors, and then a hope that is steadfast. God did this. God is the one that brought this about. You're like, well, what, what did that look like? Jump down, it's the same idea, slightly different language. But first of all, that little phrase, work of faith or a faith that works, as I've said, look at verse 6, 7 and 8. He says to them, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So work of faith, you know, uh, John says, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name or had faith in his name. To have faith in his name means that you receive the word. You want it. You latch on to it. He says, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now let me read a little bit. You can turn there if you want. I don't know if we'll have it up on the screen. If not, just listen. But listen in Acts 17, this brief description that Luke gives of when this gospel came to the Thessalonian church. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. It says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. Now, this is a city of roughly 200,000 people back at this time, okay? And they come in, and they're reasoning, and people were getting saved, and it was a city that was, that was uh, rooted and established in idolatry. In fact, in, in reading some historical commentaries this past week, I read one that said, um, this city, I forget what it's called, it starts with an S, but this city still exists today in Greece. It's, uh, it's called something else, and I forget what the name of it is right now. But as they have done like archaeological digs and different things like that, it was a city that was, that was steeped in paganism. Is that even just on some of the outsides of just the common homes, they found pornographic images engraved on the outside of many of the homes. This is the culture 
that Paul was coming into, but the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, amen? And it comes in, and sometimes, if I could just stop there for just a second, and just say, you know, sometimes we, listen, I, um, culture, outwardly right now, like, like uh, Christendom, or whatever, like us being a Christian nation, like, are we all on the same page that those days are over? It's over, folks. It's over. But that does not mean that our mission is over. What it means is that all the more, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to preach the gospel because it still can come with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction of sin. And just like, and again, we've got different forms of it on, you know, TV or media or the internet or whatever, but I don't care if it's, if it's pornographic in nature, I don't care if it's just selfishness, I don't care if it's greed, the gospel is able to transform people that are rooted in that stuff. But it is up to the people of God to preach it. Anyway, going on here, back in Acts chapter 17, he says, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. And you're like, who's Jason? Jason's just some dude that had gotten saved and had received Paul uh, and Silas and Timothy and maybe some others into his home and was just kind of hosting them. And it says, seeking to bring them out to the crowd, meaning Paul and them, it says, but when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men, listen to what they say about, about Paul and about these apostolic workers and about Christians. And obviously this is like, it's like partially true, but this is so interesting. He says, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And that's true, amen? It's a little bit twisted. It's the same thing that, it's the, same thing that the Pharisees threw at Jesus when they ultimately wanted to have him crucified. You remember this? In John chapter 19... Uh, they have him arrested, and they bring him before Pilate. And then it says, and from then on, Pilate sought to release him, because he'd questioned Jesus. He's like, this guy hasn't done anything worthy of death. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Because Jesus had been clear, I am a king. I am a king. But my kingdom is not of this world. You see, the apostles here were preaching this same type of message. That Jesus is the Christ. He is a king. But his kingdom is not of this world. But he will change you and he does get our ultimate allegiance. But all this to say is that like, can you imagine being Jason? This, this new believer? It's like, yes, I, wanna, I believe in this Jesus. And so you invite these guys into your home and now all of a sudden you're, you're drug before these city authorities the city of like 200,000 people and everybody's chanting and wanting to do something bad to you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, Jason is just one that along with several other brothers and sisters in Christ that the gospel had come to, not just with words, not just with words, although it came with words, not just with words, but it came with power, and it came with the Holy Spirit, and it came with full conviction of sin. 
And he had a faith that worked. He had a love that labored. He had a hope that was steadfast and immovable. John Calvin said of those little verses there, or that little verse and those little phrases within that verse in verse three, work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. He said, this is simply a brief description of true Christianity. And so if we were to examine our lives this morning as to whether or not we're true Christians, I would just ask you this, and again, I'm not asking you to think about the person next to you or on your right or on your left, behind you, somebody that's not here, maybe somebody that you know, but just for you, Do you have a faith that works? Do you have a love that labors? Do you have a hope that is steadfast and isn't going anywhere? Now I think all of us, if we're honest at times, there are moments where our hope might feel a little bit shaky. There are for sure moments where our love doesn't always labor or endure in the way that it should. There are moments when our faith doesn't ultimately work in the way that we want it to. But he's not, when Paul speaks like this, and when the the biblical writers speak of, speak of, of working out our salvation, working out what has happened inwardly, don't get caught up in this, this, this argument that seems to be about like, to what degree? Nobody's talking about sinless perfection. But we are talking about a real change. A real change. You know, it's like sometimes I feel like when we grow up in church in this area, and I think I might have used this illustration before, but it's like we, it's like getting the vaccine and we get just enough of the virus that it inoculates us to the whole of it. But the gospel wants to come into your life and it wants to transform you by the power of God. And this this gospel, let me press down into it just a little bit more. And again, this is really simple, but really important. Is when I say gospel, it's even just like, as I mentioned earlier, like gospel, 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 gospel centered, gospel centered, gospel centered this, gospel, gospel centered that. But what is the gospel? It is a message about a man, but not just a man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. Look back again at Acts chapter 17, (coughs) verse 3. And Paul said a lot more than this, yet this is the summary sentence that Luke gives to describe the message that Paul was preaching. He said he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, and this was Luke's summary statement of all that Paul preached, and it wasn't just in Thessalonica. This is what he preached everywhere. Very simple. He said, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. It was a message about Jesus. And when it says that Jesus is the Christ, it means that he stands alone. Like that song that we sang earlier, what was it? Jesus, you alone. Yeah, it's the title. Jesus, you alone. To be the Christ, is, it means, it's from the Greek word Christos, which means to anoint. Jesus is the anointed one. There's not more than one. There's just Jesus. And this is the message of the gospel. It is a message about a man. And listen, I, I, I grew up in church where it's like I heard about faith and I heard about 
grace and I understood that you couldn't work for it. But I didn't fully understand that it was all about Jesus. And I feel like, again, sometimes in the church we throw around these words like just gospel, gospel-centered this, gospel-centered that, grace, mercy, love, faith, hope, joy. Yes, but where do all those things come from? They come from Jesus. He is the source of absolutely everything. And if we're not proclaiming him and him as the Christ, him as in a category all by himself, it's not Jesus among other gods. He is the Christ. He stands alone. He is the God-man. He is the anointed one of God. And by implication, and this is what the unbelieving Jews and, and those of the rabble, they got but they didn't fully get it. He is a king. And if he is a king, the one thing that they did get that was right was, by implication, if he is king, then he alone deserves all of our allegiance. It's not like there's, there's a platform and there's a couple of good guys on it. It is Jesus, and then whatever other allegiances there are, and there are other ones, but it is a matter of priority. And at the top is Jesus Christ. And I ask you this morning, does Jesus Christ have all of your allegiance because if he doesn't, then you're not a person that is shaped by the gospel. And again, I'm not talking about every moment of every day. There are moments, I can tell you the moment, I, can, I mean, I'm not going to, but I could go back this week from my own life and tell you the moments where Jesus was not Lord of my life. In the things that I said, in the ways that I acted. But he is my Lord, and he is my Savior. And so I come back again, and just like the rest of you, every day, it's, it's a battle to go forward. It's a fight of faith that today, Jesus, every moment of this day, I want to live for you. Because in those moments, and as I look back even at this past week of the moments where I was not acting as though Jesus was Lord, my allegiance lied somewhere else in certain moments. It wasn't because he wasn't worthy of it. But it was because I'm a sinner, which again proves that I need Jesus. And so I run to him. I run to the cross. And all that he's, and all that he's done for me. But where Jesus Christ, church, is boldly proclaimed, God's presence is pleased to dwell. And if I can just say something too, just, uh, I, and I, I was wrestling with whether or not to say this. This has kind of been on my heart this week. And sometimes I just kind of wait till in the moment up here whether or not I'm going to say something or not. Sometimes it works out good, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I'm going to say it. It's I, you know, um, we, we had a partnership class this past Sunday night. And not just from the partnership class, but this always comes up in partnership class. And I have this conversation increasingly so as we grow and more people come and want to get plugged into the church, which is awesome. God is doing, God is doing good stuff. Um, and, and, and please hear me. I, I do this. I'm not knocking anybody. Uh, we, we all do what I'm about to describe here. But, uh, but people, there's this increasing desire for people to um, categorize us, I guess, because we're not, people, so some of the questions, this is a general question, and again, not just one person, I've heard this a whole bunch of times. But they'll say, like, well, what, what Mercy Hill, like, what, what are we? Like, we're not part of a denomination. Um, 
Are we, and one of the words that, that's been coming up more and more is, are we, are we reformed? Are we, you know, are we, sometimes they'll say like, are we, are, and I've never used this word before. I've never, I don't think I've ever used the word reform before from the pulpit, by the way. I'm not going to, I've never used this next word I'm about to use either. But like, are we, are we Calvinistic? Are we, like people are asking me this, and I, I totally get it. I totally get it because we like to, you know, put things in categories, and it's okay. Categories aren't in and of themselves bad. They, they can many times be helpful. But I say all that just because I want to say what I'm about to say here, and so please just hear my heart. Hear my heart, okay? Is that I, we, don't, we just went through a doctrinal series over the summer. Like, we don't shrink back from doctrine. In fact, we, we don't, like, doctrine is important. And, yeah, we'll... Whatever weeds you want to get into, however far you want to go on primary, secondary, tertiary issues, we'll, we'll tell you what we think the Bible says. But, it, but, it, but in all that, in all that, Mercy Hill, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, I, I need you to understand, above all that, we have to be first and foremost about Jesus. I, I, and I don't, I don't give two rips about the label of reformed or this or that or you know sometimes I had others some church leaders visit one time he goes you guys are like a reformed Baptist I'm like I, I, I just go that, that's usually my answer I go yeah I wish yeah. So I don't and it's not that I'm trying to be evasive or, or not like I I'll tell you what we believe but I just don't care I want us to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. You with me? Good, okay. But this gospel, uh, when Jesus is boldly proclaimed, the power of God shows up. And we should always be praying for it in increasing measure. Um, and I, in fact, I pray that verse every week, that when I stand up here, that the word would come, not just with words, but with power and with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction of sin. Uh, and God's power, the power of the gospel, the power of the message of Jesus Christ will shape us and wants to shape us, and it is powerful to do so, it is able to do so. so but secondly, being a gospel-shaped church isn't just being transformed by its power, but it's also being shaped by its people by gospel people, that this message came through these men. And this is something that gets overlooked a lot. This wasn't, uh, they didn't, you know, fly over top of the city, not that there were airplanes back then, and just drop down a bunch of tracks and track bomb them. Not that, you know, get the word out, however, I'm, I'm for all of it. But th this gospel came through people, people that had themselves been shaped by the gospel. Again, very basic, but in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. And Silvanus here is just another name for the, word, for the name Silas. So Paul and Silas. Um, and they had, you, you know, Paul and Silas, they're the ones that got arrested in Philippi. And Paul actually makes mention of this in this letter in the next chapter that we'll look at next week. But, you know, they got arrested, were thrown in the, in the jail, were singing hymns to God, and about midnight there was an earthquake, and God set them free. But Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy is that we're not only shaped by the gospel's power, but we're shaped by the gospel's people. These were people, men themselves, who had been transformed by the gospel. Paul was a man who was persecuting the church. 
He was on his way, walking on the road to Damascus, and Jesus Christ himself, supernatural experience, met him. You have to understand, Paul was not, Paul was not trying to do God's will. He was doing the opposite of God's will. He thought he was doing God's will, but he was actually an enemy of God and of the church. In fact, when Jesus shows up to him on the Damascus road, he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? But Paul is persecuting the church. But Jesus identifies closely with his church. But Paul was a man who was radically transformed by the power of God. Okay? And the key verse I want you to see here is in verse 6. Uh, we'll end of verse 5 in verse 6. Again, both these points are, are kind of littered throughout that were shaped by its power but also by its people. End of verse 5, he says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And that, that verb among is key, that he was, he, he was among us. Just, just, just like Jesus Christ came in the incarnation and he dwelled among us. He came from heaven to be among us. This is the way ministry has to happen. This is the way the gospel has to happen is that we have to be among people. And then verse six, and he says, and you became imitators, imitators of us. This is the Greek word mimetes. It's where we get the English word mimic. Mimic. You can't mimic somebody that you can't see and that you're not close to. And this is kind of where I want to go here with, with talking, or what I believe is, is here in the text, in terms of being shaped by the gospel's people, is that the gospel, yes, it is a message, it comes with words, and we pray that it comes with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction, but it comes through people. And this power, Holy Spirit, and conviction, it came through them because these were things that marked their lives. They were men that, th that themselves had been transformed by this gospel, by the gospel's power, by the Holy Spirit, that they had full conviction. And so it, it came in them and through them to this, to this people. Um, and this is something that as a pastor, and a pastor at Mercy Hill, is very near and dear to my heart, and it's important. And I, I, um, you may not care about it, but I want you to care about it. I'll try to get you to care about it. Uh, and we, but it's something that we all need to care about. Okay? And that is this, is that we have to understand that in our time and place in history, God is still moving like he always has throughout the history of the world, and especially the last 2,000 years um, since the day of Pentecost and Christ has been building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But we live in a time and place in history where there is a discipleship crisis. It's like an epidemic. The thing I compared it to, uh, and please don't, I'm not trying to be uh, volatile here with, with, this, with this imagery, but just work with me and be gracious with me. But I, on, on Sunday night at the partnership class, I compared it to the AIDS epidemic in Africa uh, during the course of our generation, is that you, you have a bunch of kids that because their parents have died are now growing up as, are now growing up as orphans. Um, and again, not minimizing the suffering of that in, in any way. But the same thing has happened in the church is that we have a discipleship epidemic, is that we've grown up in churches, by and large, and I know that I'm painting with broad strokes here, where discipleship, where it is imitated, where it can be mimicked, where we are among each other's lives and share life with each other in a way that people can look at and can see, by and large, has not happened. 
It has happened just simply for an hour on Sunday mornings, and I believe in what we're doing. I believe in the preaching of the word. This is important. But this is not enough. Discipleship, relationships. Listen, if you think about what the church is, in the end, the key word that has to be there, it's not, it's not about programs, it's not just about messages, it's not just about you know, podcasts and different things. It's about relationships. And here's the thing about relationships. It takes everybody to make that work. And we've grown up instead, by and large, where it's... <sighs> We come, and maybe if it's not just Sunday mornings, but we come to a class. And again, I'm not against classes. But it's still, it has to be more than that. We have to be in each other's lives. Even if the doctrine is good, even if the teaching is sound, we have to be with each other in order to speak the gospel to each other and to have each other molded and shaped into the image of Christ. And by and large, this has not happened. Let me say something. Let me give you an example of this, okay? This is a very, this is not just one-off. I have this conversation, not all the time, but consistently, okay? Is we, you know, we, uh, you know, our little discipleship pathway here, whatever, big church, small church, discipleship groups, we have people that want to be discipled. And we primarily do it, although discipleship is, in one sense, everything. It can be peer-to-peer, whatever. We try to pair together younger people in the Lord with people that have walked with the Lord longer, okay? That's what we try to do. And again, we're going to get into this more next week, but just to give you a little bit, like, like I think actually probably the most important verse in the entire book, if you were going to give one verse that sums up the entire book, it would be chapter 2, verse 8. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but our own selves or our very lives. Then he goes on to compare himself to a nursing mother. And then a little later on, or to a, a loving father that exhorts his children. So we, we, anyway, we try to pair people up with older, when I say older, people that have just simply walked with Jesus longer, okay? And this is a very common conversation. I have somebody that wants to be discipled, and I call somebody that I would like to hook up with them to disciple them. And it's both men and women, and, and this will be somebody, and I might be stepping on toes here, just... We love each other, right? Okay. Somebody that's been in the church for 40 years. They've been in the church for 40 years. And, 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 and sometimes their initial thing is, well, I just, I don't know if I can. And I go, okay, well, never mind. I go, why not? <laughs> why can't you? Now, I know why. I know why. The reason why is, is because even though they've come to church for 40 years, they themselves have never been discipled. But this is my point, is that we're living in a time and place in history where there is a discipleship epidemic. And if I can use that analogy again, like the AIDS epidemic in Africa, is that people now, kids now growing up that are going to have families of their own, that go, I never had parents. It's sad. But it is what it is. And what we need to do is lean into the scriptures and embrace the mission that God has given us. Are you with me? 
the t- and God in his sovereignty has allowed it to be what it is. We need to repent of it, and we need to not pass it on to a different generation. Look, it's like this, and think about parenting. And again, Paul, Paul uses this all over. We'll see it next week. He, he, he describes discipleship within the context of parenting. Not that it's exactly apples to apples, but there are some takeaways. He's going to do this next week, which we'll look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ... You do not have many fathers, for I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Is it in the same way, I mean, how many of you, um, when you had your first kid, and all of a sudden you're at the hot, and they're just like, they just sent you home without an instruction manual. And you're like, okay, here we go, I, I guess. My point is simply being is, you figured it out, right? Did you make mistakes? Sure. But you figured it out. You embraced it. This is what we have to do, folks. But I'm not just, I'm saying all of us, all of us, it takes everybody to shepherd everybody. It really does. Um, and this is what we have to lean into because if we're going to be a truly a gospel-shaped people, we will not just be shaped by its power, but we will be shaped by its power coming through people, through each other. Through, through each other. This is why, and again, it's very briefly here to back this up, you see Paul, it, like, it wasn't just Paul, I think we picture sometimes the missionary Paul, probably the greatest missionary who ever lived, walking into a city by himself, just kind of rolling in like John Rambo into the jungle, to get the POWs or whoever, and, uh, and he goes in, and he just says, repent, and everybody repents. It's not, it's not how it was. There was a team. There was always a team. And if you understand what I'm saying, like if you're a gospel-shaped people, you'll understand that ministry needs to be done as a team because there's only one Jesus. He's the Christ. He alone is in a category all by himself and doesn't need anybody, but we do. And we need each other. We're all part of the body of Christ. If we're gospel-shaped people, we're going to be a people that are deeply thankful and filled with hope. Again, Paul is praying to, in verses 2 and 3 to God for the Thessalonians. And he's deeply thankful for them. Let me ask you this. The reason, so we, we will be thankful um, and we will value the place where we're invested. So Jesus put it like this. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So your heart, doesn't fo- your heart will follow your treasure, and your treasure being like the place where you're invested. So I remember several years ago, um, back when I was doing roofing, it was back in 2008 when there was a big stock market crash or whatever, I was at this house giving a roof estimate, and this lady came to the door all distraught. And she's like, did you hear whatever, and you know, the market had crashed that day. I mean, she was, she, it, was, it was hard on her. My, my heart went out to her. But here's the thing. It didn't, it didn't affect me at all because I wasn't invested. I didn't have any money in the stock market. So it didn't really affect me. But she was deeply invested, and it deeply affected her. Is if We need to be invested in people. That's what I'm saying. Paul was a great investor, not in physical things, not in monetary things. And again, there's nothing against that. Hear me. But Paul was deeply invested in people. Is that where you're invested at? 
But you see, if you don't, if you don't care about discipleship, if you don't care about what I'm talking about, and I'm not saying that you don't, but, but if you don't, then it's because you're not invested in it. Paul was deeply invested in these people. They were like his children. If you'll jump over to chapter 2, verse 19, he says it like this. He says, for what is our hope or our joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. The Thessalonian people, along with other churches, were his treasure. He goes on in in the beginning of chapter 3. He says, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. He said, we we couldn't stand. We just had to find out, how are you doing in the midst of this persecution? Listen, and if I can just press into this for just a second, like, when I say, are you invested in people, where where are you investing your time? Where are you investing your money? Where are you investing your prayers? And probably most, although we don't think about this one, but this is one that comes along with it, where are you investing your emotional energy? See, we all have emotional energy. We don't think about this a lot. But we, we don't like to invest it in people because here's the thing, okay? And let me just state the obvious here. Is I'm sure all of us can tell our stories where we've invested emotional energy in people. And it just, if we're honest it's like we haven't got a great return on the investment. We felt like it was maybe kind of a waste of time. Can I just shoot real straight with you? Welcome to ministry. This is what it is. You see victories and you see defeats. Not everything is always up and to the right. In fact, let me just be really clear here. You're like, Erica, you're not helping your case here. But let me just... Be honest with you. Um, like, if you do what I'm calling you to do, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you straight up right now. If you invest in people, you will have your heart broken. You will. And I'm not minimizing. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt. We've all got our stories. But here's the thing. This is what King Jesus has called us to do. And so if King Jesus says to do it, we do it. Um, Because even though there's defeats, there are also victories. And there are people that the gospel, through our lives, and this is amazing when you think about it, is that we serve the same Jesus and we carry the same gospel as the Apostle Paul. And when we invest it with our life, with our emotional energy, with our time, our money, our prayers, and with our words, um, It changes people. It changes people. And we too can have a joy that that nothing else compares to. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. This this message of the gospel, it's it's sounded forth from the Thessalonian church. We didn't fully get to these verses, but they became imitators of Paul. And then they themselves, verse 7, became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And then Paul says, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. Sounded forth from them throughout Macedonia and Achaia in that, that entire region. For us it would be like 
we should pray that the word of the Lord would sound forth from us in the state of Ohio, in Holmes County, in the surrounding, in the surrounding counties. John Stott said it is by the gospel that the church exists and it is by the church that the gospel spreads. It is by the gospel that the church exists, the gospel created this church, but then it was by this church, the Thessalonian church, that the gospel spread. It sounded forth. And if you call Mercy Hill home, I just want to exhort us all, including myself, guys, this is what God wants for us. And every single one of us plays a role in embracing this mission of sharing the gospel and investing our lives in, into other people. If you would, just bow your heads with me for just a second as we close. And I'll just put it like this. Guys, gospel-centered, gospel-shaped churches, as we've talked about it here this morning, they're made up of gospel-shaped individuals. And I just want you to, again, just examine your own heart. And I want to examine my own heart. I just want to ask the question, where are you invested? Is it in this world? Is it in the stuff that the king of this, that Caesar, the king of this world says is important? Or are you invested in the stuff that King Jesus says is important? And it's a battle, because we, listen, I get it, man. (laughs) You live, you, you have a wife, you got kids, you got a job, you got a house, you got a mortgage, And then you live in East Holmes County (laughs) where everybody likes to compare themselves with themselves and not just here, but that's everywhere. But (laughs) But where's your treasure? And if Christ is our treasure, what he commands us to do, our worship to him is to love others. That's what it is. And yeah, we'll have our hearts broken. Yes, it will drain our emotional energy at times. But all of that is worship to King Jesus. Because he came and he gave his life for us. He poured it all out on the cross. And if he had not lived a perfect life of righteousness, we would have no hope but he gave everything he had. He suffered and bled and died and he gave every last drop of his emotional energy to create for himself a people, the church, that are formed by the gospel, shaped by the gospel, that exist because of the gospel, but also take the gospel forward. And so, Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to examine our hearts. And God, we we might be here, like, I don't even know. I don't know what each one is supposed to do. All I know, Lord, is I'm just trying to stay focused on what you've called me to do. But, Lord, I pray we would invest our lives in the right place. And I pray that it would not be some sort of a thing where we think that we do something and then you owe us. But I pray that it could all be done as worship. 
I thank you for these folks. Lord, I thank you for everybody that calls Mercy Hill home. I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you that the gospel is sounding forth from us in some unique ways. And all we say is yes and amen, yes and amen, yes and amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Do it all the more. Let your gospel sound forth from us, not for the sake of Mercy Hill or the sake of Eric Miller or the sake of whatever denomination people might try to peg us as, but for the sake and the name, the renown, the glory of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we get to worship you, Lord. So please help us now to stand and sing with all our might. In Christ's name I pray, amen.